Thanks for tuning in to the Sanctuary Church Podcast. We're a church in the great city of San Francisco, and our heart is that everyone would experience true sanctuary in Jesus. We're currently in a series called Just Jesus, where we're walking through the Gospel of Mark so that in this time of deconstruction and disappointment, we can simply get our eyes on this person of Jesus. Just a quick note, our teaching often does include a decent amount of discussion and community response, and we do intentionally edit that out in order to preserve confidentiality and the Sunday experience. So you'll likely not hear the full content or context of the teaching, but still, our hope is that this will encourage you and equip you. And really, we're just so honored that you would listen in. Here it is. All right, so we are going to be back in our Just Jesus series that I shared last week. Uh, We're going back here through Mark. We're marching verse by verse, which means you can't skip anything. (laughs) You can't skip hard verses. And and, and we've got some teachings of Jesus that are really going to challenge us. We're going to be in the season of Lent through Book of Mark, uh, understanding, you know, what God has for us, what he's teaching his disciples and uh, yeah, he's not pulling any punches in these few chapters, heading towards the end of his life. We're going to end in uh, the end of Lent on Palm Sunday with Jesus entering into Jerusalem. Last week, well, I won't get into that. We'll just go into the text uh, right now. So last week we did skip ahead to uh, Mark 10, just in light of Valentine's Day. We thought it'd be good to talk about marriage uh, going into that. So we'll, we'll go back to what we missed. We'll be in Mark 9. Verse 42, anyone who finds it in our little pew Bibles, could you call it a page number? 821, for those following along at home, it'll also be on your screen. Mark 9, 42 through 50. And uh, be listening again for what this is about God, what this is, says about people. We'll discuss this. Any questions you have, uh, any, anything you want to discuss, we'll, we'll dive into it. But here is the word of the Lord. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands, with two hands to go into hell, where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how? Can you make it salty again? Have salt among themselves and be at peace. Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. This is the word of the Lord. Nice. I like it. (laughs) Um, Thanks be to God. Yeah. What a text we find ourselves in. Last week we talked about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Uh, This week, dismemberment, uh, amputation, plucking out eyes, worms that never die, fire that never goes 
out, everyone will be salted with fire. Welcome to church, Sanctuary Church, everyone. Uh, God loves you. All right, be dismissed. Uh, <laughs> we're going to dive into this text. I want you to take 30 seconds. We'll do it again. We won't break into groups. Let's just actually have a conversation together. But take 30 seconds, read it over again. What questions do you have? What does it say about God? What does it say about humans? And then we'll come together. Yeah, Father, we thank you that every word that you give us is profitable, you say. It's good for teaching, instructing, correcting, encouraging, Father. Just pray that you would speak to us today through this. I just thank you for the words you've already given us, just about casting off false images and looking to you and accepting our true image. And I just pray uh, as we look at this text, what is it? that you want us to cast off? What is it that you're inviting us into in this seemingly challenging um, challenging text, Father? Uh, yeah, that confronts us. What is it, Father, that you have for us? I just pray for each of us that we would accept the invitation that's hidden in these verses, Father, and that we you would speak into our hearts. And actually, I just pray there would be incredible freedom, an incredible invitation to intimacy with you that we would have as we study your word today, Jesus. Help us. Give us everything you have. I just pray that you protect us from anything that you don't have, anything that's not of you. The enemy comes to sow deceit, to come, to, comes to sow um, confusion, just, we pray, God, protect us against that. We pray we open our hearts to your Holy Spirit speaking to us today, in this time, in this place, God. Amen. All right, <laughs> let's get to work. So, uh, what does it say about God? What does it say about people? What questions do you have? What concerns do you have? Uh, what do you notice? What sticks out? All right, I was actually in a church planter uh, incubator this week, and I was listening to someone who was summarizing a podcast from Carrie Newhoff, and he said this. Um, he called it the leadership industrial complex in America, leadership development industrial complex. It's an $87 billion industry, uh, and that means you look at books, you look at podcasts and conferences and leader, executive coaching and training and all of that. We spend, Americans spend $87 billion per year on becoming better leaders, on leadership development. At the same time, there has never been a higher crisis, at least in American history, of leadership <laughs> and trust in institutions. We're spending $87 billion on leadership development. In the 60s, if you would have asked, if you had polled people according to, who's this Pew Research, uh, if they trusted their government leaders, over 70% of people would have said, yes, they trusted their government leaders. Today, that number is hovering around 7%. 7%. And we're spending 87 billion. And that's across all of our institutions. The same thing can be said. And we're spending so much money on leadership development and actually having so miserable results. We say, all right, well, at least the church, well, not church isn't any difference. Actually, confidence in pastors are at an all-time low. This is from Gallup right here. You can see 
as of last year, uh, confidence in pastors is down to 32%. It's a 20% drop in just the last four years. We have a leadership crisis in America and in the church. And who can blame them? Who can blame us for having this crisis, right? Everywhere you look, leadership in the church is making headlines for all of the wrong reasons, right? I mean, it doesn't matter which tradition, which, you know, angle of Christianity, which slice of the Christian pie you're talking about. I mean, the Catholic Church, Boston Globe, scandal, right? Reformed Church, you can look at Acts 29, scandal. How about the megachurch? Look at Willow Creek, scandal. The largest evangelical denomination in the U.S., Southern Baptist Convention, scandal. How about the evangelism powerhouse? Ravi Zacharias, International Ministries. Scandal. All right, let's look, let's look at the worship charismatic powerhouse. Hillsong. Scandal. All right, well, at least the 24-7 prayer movement, guys, International House of Prayer, the ones that are focused on holiness, holiness, holiness. I don't know if you saw the headlines even this week. Scandal. That guy should be in jail. It is horrific what has happened. And of course, like the victims of these scandals have suffered horrifically, absolutely horrific. And it should grieve us deeply, and there should be a righteous anger that rises up. But we kid ourselves if we think the fallout is limited to those who were directly abused in these scandals. Anyone know anyone who has left the church never to come back because of a crisis of leadership. Someone that didn't meet the leadership test. Their gifting may, may have outpaced their character. Um, I have a coworker, uh, and she is kind of, yeah, anyways, middle-aged. She's been through a lot of life. And uh, she, a few years ago, she was just deciding to step back into church world again. And so she grew up in one kind of tradition. She ended up going to this kind of larger church in a suburb, kind of more mega churchy. Um, and I'm familiar with this, this church. And I was talking to her about that. What was that like? And I was, I was cheering her on. It was exciting to see her kind of step into faith again. And God was doing something. There seemed to be something in her spirit. And I'll never forget, um, there was a situation where basically the elder board, the governing board of this church, felt like the senior pastor was abusing his power and uh, being a little heavy-handed, and they actually asked him to step down. And so they worked through it, and he was going to step down, and he was actually going to, they were going to do it in a peaceful way. He was going to send it to the pulpit and actually, on a Sunday, let the church know what it happened, the process he was going through, and, uh, and, and the process for, for hopeful restoration. And he got up to the pulpit that Sunday, and instead of reading the letter that he had prepared and that everyone had reviewed, he actually went to town on the elder board and he rallied the church he said if you think the elder board is right or if you think I am right we're gonna have a vote right now with your feet if you stand with me stand up and this is the thousands of people and she stood up she walked out of the door and has never been back to church since and I'm sure, I mean, many of you have stories like this with your friends and families. Maybe you have been hurt. Church hurt is a real thing. 
Um, and so when you look at a passage like this, when it says, if any of you, if anyone causes one of these little ones, and he defines little ones as those who believe in me, he's not just talking about kids here, he's talking about his believers. And in context, uh, if you go back and look at what, what God is talking about, he's talking about leadership, he's redefining leadership to the disciples. Earlier, he defines greatness. They were arguing about who is great, and he, he defines greatness as serving. Billy talked about that a few weeks ago. Anyway, in that context, he's broadening the definition of what little ones are. And, and, um, and I, I wonder if Jesus had in mind what stuff we're talking about today. And so we look at this passage, and we're like, oh, geez, this is a little rough, Jesus. Like, this is a little harsh. And yet, think about how many people have been hurt and scandalized by leaders who haven't held their calling in high enough regard or have fallen or have stumbled and who have led people astray. And actually, I know we're small in this room, but mighty. <laughs> I, my heart, and my prayer, and I really believe that each of us are leaders in our own right. Each of us are disciplers, and we're going to see many people come to know God, and we're going to lead people into the ways of Jesus. And so this isn't just a passage for those big megachurch leaders, those big, or me, or whoever. I think this is a passage for all of us. Like, who, like we should have the fear of God in us. And I read this, and I'm, I'm not thinking with judgment, how could they? I'm thinking, oh my goodness, this could be me. Like, the closer I am to Jesus, the more I am aware of my capacity to sin and my capacity to sin greatly, and it gives me the fear of God, even standing up here today. And you go, oh my goodness, God, may my heart be completely surrendered to you, because there is much at stake. So when we approach a passage like this, we can view it and be like, where is, where is, where is kindness? Where is grace in this? And actually, I, I think there, God is, Jesus is actually being, you know, very kind, actually giving us warnings and saying, Hey, I have, I have things for you to know. I have things, I care about the people that you're leading. I care about my children greatly. And it's out of that care uh, that he gives us this passage. Brendan Manning has this quote, he's a ragamuffin gospel guy. He says, because we approach the gospel with preconceived notions of what it should say rather than what it does say, the word no longer falls like rain on the parched ground of our souls. It no longer sweeps like a wild storm in the corners of our comfortable piety. It no longer vibrates like sharp lightning in the dark recesses of our non-historic orthodoxy. The gospel becomes, in the words of Gertrude Stein, a pattering of pious platitudes spoken by a Jew, Jewish carpenter in the distant past. And so my heart is actually that we read these words as they are. They would allow God to pierce us to the heart. And I think the most dangerous place that any of us could be, that I could be, is to say that could never happen to me. And I believe there's good news here for us. It's going to be a little heavy message, but hopefully we'll get to across and get out and see uh, some promises as well in here. Um, so there, a lot of pastors have, um, have coined this term a culture of compromise. The time that you and I have been born into, it just is. It is a time of compromise. Uh, David Wells uh, defines this. He has this quote, worldliness is what any particular culture does to make sin seem normal and righteousness seem strange. 
Sin seem normal. Righteousness seem strange. I think he's echoing the words of Isaiah in Isaiah 5. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Sin seemed normal and righteousness seemed strange. It kind of sounds like San Francisco, right? <laughs> like a place where sin seems normal, uh, righteousness seems strange. And it, the pressure of our culture, this is the, again, the culture that we're born into. And I'm not lamenting this. God has appointed the time and place and he has predestined when we get to be living and where we get to be living, the range, the boundaries of our lives. And he's destined us to be in this moment. So I'm not lamenting it. I believe God actually has something incredible in store for this moment. But it is something we are born into. Um, the pr- and there is a pressure in our culture. What is celebrated, what was celebrated is now condemned. What used to be condemned is now celebrated. And if you don't celebrate that, then you yourself are now condemned. Right? I mean, case A, the sexual revolution. I mean, no matter what you think, in the last 50, 60 years complete reversal. What was once celebrated, now condemned. What was condemned, now celebrated. And if you don't celebrate it, you yourself are now condemned. So what happens in a culture of compromise when these things have happened is it's not just out there. The compromise begins to come into the church, and we start being tempted to compromise. We feel this pressure. We may not even want it or, or desire to even know it, but we feel this pressure to actually compromise ourselves. It puts this pressure on the church to compromise, and I think that's the atmosphere we breathe, right? That's the, the water we swim in, is we've got this, this subtle pressure. And so I think this text shows three ways that we're tempted to compromise ourselves and it actually encourages us, exhorts us, it provokes us to resist that pressure. So I'm going to go through these three co- compromises pretty quick, hopefully quick, we'll see, maybe not quick. <laughs> and then um, uh, there's an invitation for us at the end, and then actually I think we're going to spend some time letting God speak to our own hearts. Are any of these true of us? Do we agree? Do we disagree? Honestly, it doesn't matter what I say. <laughs> what does Scripture say? What does the Holy Spirit say? Uh, all right, the first is this, a compromised orthodoxy. A compromised orthodoxy. Verse 42, it says, If anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. Wow, that's a little harsh. But the little ones, we always talk about those. They're actually just disciples. It says actually in this context, he pulled his disciples away. He's just talking to his disciples at this time. Stumble is not just kind of like a one-off sin. If you do kind of a word study, it really means like to fall away from the faith or um, to fall into like a pattern of sin. So it's not just like a one little one-off thing. The millstone there, it actually would be used to, um, to like grind up grain really finely. And it was a huge millstone. It was actually could only be pulled by a donkey. So it's like, this is, this is rough here. Historically, the church has interpreted this verse and understood this verse to actually be about false teachers. And if you read the letters of Paul to the early church, he is very serious about rooting out false teachers. In in 2 Timothy 4, 3, this is a a leadership letter, Paul to Timothy, his disciple who's leading a church and He's asking for advice, and, God, and Paul is sending, giving him advice. He said, For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. 
Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. And so, in a culture of compromise, we can be tempted ourselves to compromise our theology, to compromise our orthodoxy, to compromise what the scriptures say. And the first thing you can, I mean, I think the root behind all all of this is the authority of the Bible. Just to say, hey, it's just a human book. It's not authoritative. How primitive they were. They were archaic. They didn't have a great understanding of the world and the way the world works. And they were bigots back then. And so we try to reinterpret Bible and ignore parts that candidly make us feel uncomfortable. And we we end up believing things. There's whole you know, facets of, of Christianity that believes things that no other generation of Christianity has believed up until about 30 years ago, right? We begin to compromise the power of the cross and say, oh, Jesus, we love Jesus. He was a great teacher, but what happened there? He was just an inspiring martyr. He was taking on the Roman government. He was a social warrior of his day. But the cross, that wasn't actually like him bearing the full sin of the world on his shoulders. There isn't actually redemption. He was a great model. He was a great teacher. So we compromise on our view of the cross. Compromise on the exclusivity views of Jesus. We reduce religions to something that we tolerate. As long as it's helpful for you, then it's good. Go, go do it. But the moment that you make any exclusivity claims, you are now intolerant you know, bear in mind that they're calling you intolerant for, uh, you know, they're actually being intolerant because they're not tolerating your views, right? But we, exclusivity, how dare you tell me that there's only one way to truth and salvation? We compromise the call to sacrificially surrender. This can happen a couple of different ways where we, we, on one side of the spectrum, you cling to an idol of political power and you try to get control and try to get influence and try to get significance in culture by, by locking yourself, hitching yourself to a political figure that has very little to do <laughs> with the person of Jesus. On the other side of the spectrum, you cling to the prosperity gospel, right? This gospel that says, if you just come to Jesus, you'll be healthy, wealthy, happy, wise. Jesus will fix all of your problems. And we ignore what Jesus says. To be great is to be least. We've got to carry our cross. To find our life, we have to die. Right, And so the problem is we strip Christianity of its potency and its power to actually confront and transform us. And we end up having something that sounds Christian, it sounds good, but it's really just kind of this glossy veneer of Christianese over human secularism. And it, it, it really, if you boil it down, it's just this message of be kind, be just, be good. But it actually offers no power to transform us, no power to change us. And the number one reason why Gen Z is leaving the church today, they will tell you, is because they don't find Jesus compelling as presented. We've watered down Jesus' message and we've lost its potency. If you take a, a flight from Los Angeles to Rome, they will tell you if, if that, when that when that flight it takes off, if it's just got one degree of difference, if it's off course by one degree, it doesn't end up in Rome. It ends up in Tunisia, Africa over a 12-hour period. And I think what a great illustration. We can just be a little off. We should be sober-minded about our, what we're believing, our orthodoxy. These truths that have been handed down from generation to generation to generation and guard these. Paul, again, Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16, watch your life and doctrine closely. 
persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. That's first compromised orthodoxy. The second, I'm saying a compromised orthopraxy. If you don't know what orthopraxy means, orthodoxy means right believing, orthopraxy, right living. Uh, right living, a compromised orthopraxy. And what happens is, it's not just our beliefs, it's about how we live in, this, in a, in a, <laughs> in a, um, in a culture of compromise, right? We go out there and people tamp down our zeal. We tamp down our zeal. Like, if you remember when you first got saved, that first message of the gospel, you're so, like, this changes everything. I'm so excited. I'm so excited. And then I remember, I, like, I went to youth camp once, and I was so on fire for God. Like, God met me. I heard his voice for the first time, and I came down. Someone really significant and influential in my life just kind of, you know, gave that sarcastic sneer comment. Yeah, we'll see how you, we'll see how you feel in a couple of weeks. You know, and it's just like, but that's an illustration of our culture of compromise. It, it t- tamps down the zeal we have to live out our faith with compassion and, and, and with great conviction and courage, right? And what happens? People don't like it because it confronts their own apathy. So we try not to rock the, rock the boat. We gradually start to accept things in our lives that would have been unthinkable in the days when those flames of our first love first burst open. And Jesus is going to say here, actually, if you want to avoid causing other people to sin, if you want to avoid false doctrine, actually there's a way to do it. And it's actually be ruthless about eliminating their own sin in your life and be very fine-tuned on how you live. He says, verse 43, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands and go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. For it is better to enter life crippled than have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than have two eyes and be thrown into hell. Jesus is saying it's better to limp into heaven than leap into hell, right? So if you want to avoid leading other people astray, you better have a deep look inward. And I've talked about this before. I went over this, but our culture today gives us dozens of scripts that we can use to justify why we don't follow Jesus, why we don't want to take his words seriously, right? Like it's our wound. It's our origin story. It's our Enneagram number. It's our whatever. It's our struggle of why we don't want to take this seriously. And we're not careful. We can create a Christianity where Jesus understands why we're not taking him seriously and why we're not following his words. We live in a therapeutic culture. I love therapy. I think most of us can benefit greatly from therapy. Please go get one. We announced last week again, we've got a therapy fund. If you need it, like we will, we will literally fund you to go get uh, counseling. It's that important. We believe it. But if your counselor when confronted with sin, doesn't actually cause you to confront it, but wants to comfort you and let you coddle it, we would say, no, that's not what Jesus says here. Jesus gets really, he's this incredibly violent language. Cut it off, cut it off. Ruthlessly eliminate anything that isn't, is displeasing to God in your life. Get it out. And when you come to Jesus, obviously, like when you first come to Jesus, usually it's those first, it's those big sins that he wants to tackle, right? whether it's, you know, those big things that, you know, we, we all come to him. And, and most of us, you know, as we go to Jesus over the years, we can get those big things out. 
but how many of you know that as you keep following Jesus, he like goes room by room in your house and, he, and it goes deeper and deeper and you think you've got things done. You've, you've got all those sins of commission out, the big things in your life, but it's the sins of omission. It's what you're not doing. It's what you should be doing. What, what, and then after that, it's like it gets after the motivational structures of your heart. It's like you're doing the right thing, but you're doing it for the wrong motive. It's like it goes deeper and deeper and deeper and God keeps working and working and working. And in context here, this is important too, again, this is a leadership lesson Jesus is giving. So in context, he's actually saying your sin doesn't just impact you. Other people's sanctification is somehow connected to the level of your consecration. Other people's sanctification is connected to the level of your to- of tolerance of sin in your life. Like We create a culture around us. Again, go back to the intro. How many people have been really hurt by what the church has done, what leaders have done, leaders they trusted and has let them down. There's that story in Joshua 7 about Achan. Do you remember Achan, Achan, Achan? How come Achan? Uh, this was right after the, the Israelites marked around, marched around Jericho, you know, the seven times, you know the, you know the, the story. The walls came a-tumbling down, had a huge victory, and everything was going great. The Lord was with Joshua and the Israelites and um, there was a one, the, the, like the, what should have been a, like a quick victory, like there was another side town, I, A-I, A, I don't know how you pronounce it, I, and, he, and, and Joshua just sends a small delegation because it should be an easy victory of I. And what happens? The Israelites get smashed. They get destroyed. And Joshua's like, what happened? We just used in the power of the Lord. We, you know, we just tackled Jericho. And what happened? And the Lord revealed to him. He said, someone in your camp has taken the plunder, part of the plunder, didn't bring it into the temple, didn't bring it to the Lord, and actually took it for themselves. It was Achan. And and the Lord reveals. It it goes down to the tribe, goes down to the family, goes down to the person, Achan. He said, Achan, what happened? And I found out that he had stored some of the treasure under his tent. One man's sin cost all of Israel their victory. We should have a fear of God in our lives about the unconsecrated areas of our lives, the hidden sin. Let me tell you this, it will be found out. If there is anything in our lives, it will be uncovered. God talks about revealing, the light will reveal Make sure there's nothing hidden in your tent. <laughs> Let's make sure there's nothing hidden in our tent. Even now, God, search me, know me. What is, I mean, I spent this week, man, in fear of presenting this. So I don't want to be a hypocrite. And God is so gracious and kind. He keeps revealing things, revealing things. And, but man, God wants to set us free. Again, the further along you get with Jesus. The more he wants to reveal, he, and that's his delight, and there's freedom there, and it's good. Question it would be helpful to ask yourself, how long has it been since you've been convicted of something? How long has it been and, and God in his kindness has spoken to your heart and you've had to repent? It says his kindness leads us to repentance. It's his voice in our heart. It's his kindness. And final thing here, a compromised heart, compromised heart. Um, if you actually go back into the Levitical law, Leviticus 21, 
actually a deformity according to the kind of the old law disqualified a priest from having full access to the temple. And so this is an interesting paradigm here. What Jesus is saying is actually pretty profound. He is saying sin that deforms your character is far more serious than ritual purity. It's far more serious than even a deformity because it disqualifies a person from eternal life in the world to come. Um, and just in case you were thinking, should we be taking this seriously? Should we actually cut off everyone? Kind of assumes that it's hyperbole. Hy- hyperbole, and I believe it is. I mean, no serious scholar actually thinks you should go around and cut off your hand. And, 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 I, and part of the reason it says in Mark 7 earlier, we studied this, it says Jesus went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All of these evils come from inside and defile a person. And then he, going back to our passage in verse 50, he says, Salt is good, but if salt loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? And the answer is, you can't. <laughs> salt, salt is salt. It doesn't lose its saltiness. Some scholars think maybe there were like rocks in the Dead Sea that had like the flavors of salt and it would taste like salt for a minute, but then it would like leach out and you wouldn't get it. But I think, I think what Jesus is actually saying here is like, no, you need a new heart. You need something new in you. Like you can't fake it. If you fake it, it's going to be uh, found out in Matthew 7. Jesus says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we not prophesy in your name? Not drive out demons in your name? Didn't we not perform miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. And there's a principle here, impact. They were very productive in the kingdom, right? Casting out demons, doing miracles. Impact, though, without intimacy is evil. And I think we can see if I might be so bold as to say, at least in the American church, we have churches built on impact, church programs built, and we've got everything. But do we have the intimacy with Jesus? Intimacy produces fruit that lasts. John 15, 5 says, if you remain in me, Jesus says, if you remain in me, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. We need a new heart. Revelation 2. Jesus is speaking to his church in Ephesus. Ephesus was a church planted by Paul. Timothy took over after Paul. Then John the Beloved, one of Jesus' own disciples, took over. They had great teaching. They had great exhortation. They had the book of Ephesians, pretty good, given to them, right? Like they've had all of these tools. They had the great leader. What do we think we need in American church? We need the gifted leader. They had all the content. They had the book of Ephesians. What do we think we need? We we need great content right? Jesus says this, I know your deeds, your hard work and perseverance. Jesus is speaking to the church of Ephesus. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people. If you have tested those who proclaim to be apostles are not and found them false. They have great orthodoxy. You have persevered and endured hardships for my name and you have not grown weary. They have great orthopraxy. Yet this I hold against you. You have forsaken the love you had it first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. 
Jesus is after is your whole heart. He's got everything in the world, but one thing, your whole heart. <laughs> he wants your whole heart. And you know this, rules aren't going to cause you to change. Me preaching here, as mediocre as I am today, I'm not going to cause you to actually change, right? It's got to be a new heart. It's got to be God that gives us, that wants us to change and to pursue him. You have forsaken your first love. Any of you can remember maybe when the first time you fell in love, how you changed everything about yourself because you were so in love with the person you were pursuing? When you love, it causes us to change. It causes us to pursue. And God loves us so much. Anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. So an invitation of conviction in a time of compromise. What are we going to do? Listen, this isn't about boxing us in and giving us a list of things to beat us down. This is about Jesus having a vision for your life of you flourishing. He says, if we catch it, it is better. He says it four times. It is better. Verse 42, verse 43, it is better. Verse 45, it is better. Verse 47, it is better. Jesus isn't holding out on us. As you presented, Dan, he wants to give us what is better. He wants to give us life. If the warnings are that grave, the kingdom must be that great right? It's like he's contrasting. He's saying, no, it is better. I've come to give you what is better. John 10, 10, what does he say? The thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy, but I have come that you may have life and life to the full. He has a vision for your life, and he's warning us, as you're saying, he's warning us out of his great love for us. I've got so many good things for you. I've got such great plans for you. I, want, I don't want you to miss them. I want you to come into this, his kingdom. I want you to come in. It is better. I've got so much good for you. Hebrews 12.1 says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. What does it say? And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. There's a race marked out for you. God has given you a race to run. He's given you plans. He's given you a destiny. He's given you good works. He's given you something to do in this life that is uniquely yours. And he's given us, Sanctuary Church in San Francisco, a race to run that is uniquely ours. And the author of Hebrews is saying, don't let sin hinder you. Don't let sin tangle you. No, don't miss out on the race. Repentance is not actually about earning God's forgiveness. Actually, We'll get into this in a second. Jesus has already done that for us. Jesus has already paid for that on the cross. I think it's not about avoiding punishment. It's about experiencing his presence. He's got something for us. It's not that you'll be punished. It's actually that you'll miss out on his presence. Rather than being in the promised land and accepting everything that God has, we're going to be wallowing and wandering in the desert. And God is saying, don't miss out. Acts 3, this is amazing. Catch this. Repent then. We think of repenting as a bad word. But it says, repent then and turn to God. Why? So that your sins may be wiped out and that times of refreshing may come for the Lord, that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Repentance gives us access. That's the key. Repentance gives us access to times of refreshing. It's an invitation to experience his mercy afresh. The faster we repent, the quicker we get to the grace of God. If we're slow to repent, it actually reveals something, that we think God is a harsh taskmaster, right? It reveals that we don't really understand God's heart for us, who's so quick and eager to pour out grace. 
how eager he is. Psalm 86.5, you, Lord, are forgiving and good, abounding in love. To who? All who call out to you. He's abounding in love to all. Chris Hodges says, remember, God isn't looking for perfection. He's looking for humility and honesty about our need for him, our brokenness. The Bible tells us God is especially attracted, especially attracted. There's a special attraction to a repentant heart. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. God, you will not despise. That's written by King David, who committed adultery and then murdered that person's husband. And he's calling out to God. And there was grace enough for even David, a man after God's own heart. There's grace for you. There's grace for us. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. 1 John 1, 8 through 9. Just again, don't want any conceptions. We got to pull it all together. No, it says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If you think you're sinless, got bad news for you. You're not. But it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. All right, last thing, and then we'll be done. We'll respond. I know it's a long time ago now. We used to preach, uh, we preached through the gospel of Mark. There's that passage, you remember it, in Mark 5, where God, where Jesus goes across the river, or the sea, and then he lands, and there's the, he's greeted by the demoniac. It says legion, the many, many, many uh, uh, demons possessed. Do you remember what happened? He cast out the demon out of this person, and there were many, and he sent them into the pigs. What do the pigs do? They ran off the cliff, right? Do you remember what happened at the end of that story? Spoiler, verse 17. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. I think there's an insight for us here. Pigs in that day were not clean. The Jewish people, Israelites, were not supposed to be associated with pigs. And yet this person in this community was probably because it was very, very lucrative to do so but it was an area of compromise. They were compromising what they were supposed to be doing, associated with pigs. And when Jesus casts out the demons into the pigs and the pigs cast themselves off the cliff, their response when Jesus had come because they were living in an area of compromise in their life was when Jesus came to their village, performed a miracle, they said, we don't want you here leave. And I think for us, when we think about repentance, we think about living in a culture of compromise and thinking about ways we may have compromised in our own lives. If we don't kill the area of compromise in our life, we run the risk that we'll be the ones to tell Jesus when he comes, actually, we don't want you here. We don't want you here. Repentance gives us access to God. Compromise, holding him at arm's length, prevents us from experiencing his presence. You know, I've been, I've been, I've been saying, I, 
I think we're on the precipice of something. I think we're on the early chapters in America, maybe in the Western world, certainly in San Francisco, of God coming and meeting his church in a new way. I don't know if it'll be revival and awakening and fresh. I just know he's coming, he's near. And I don't want us to miss it. If you study revivals, it doesn't matter which one, the Moravians, the Hebrides, the Welsh revival, the businessman revival in New York, it all starts with repentance. It all starts with emptying ourselves out and repenting to God. I want to make space for God to come in our hearts and direct us and for us to experience the fullness. We're not earning anything. Jesus paid the price on the cross. Isaiah 53.5 He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was was on him. By his wounds we are healed. That's the promise. Jesus paid the price for us. We just get to come close to him. And I don't want any of us to miss out. I want to pray for us. And what I want to do, we got just a few minutes left. I'm going to put on some music. Uh, we'll, we'll play it. And I just pray, um, why don't you take some time to spend with Jesus? Well, five, six, seven minutes. I don't know how long it'll be. Ask him. Oh, there's a few questions if you go. What areas do I need to cut off? What are the little things that are causing me or others to stumble? What is my emotional response to the call of repentance? Where is there resistance or fear and why is that? How long has it been since I have heard the voice of God call me to repentance? There's some helpful questions. If those don't suit you or not helpful, use your own. But let's take some time to get with God. What I want to do after the end of this is actually respond as a as a respond as a church. I'll give it some more instruction actually afterwards. Let's just let's just pause here. Father, we thank you for this word. I know it's it's a tough word, Jesus, but I just pray, God, that you would show us where there's life. You would show us the invitation you have, where you would show us the better way. It is better, Jesus, to be with you. It is better to confess and accept your kindness and grace on our life, to run to you like an open dad, Father, who wants us to come. We're not thinking, oh, is he going to punishment? We're thinking, oh, my dad can fix this. Oh, my dad can fix this. God, would you give us that posture today? Can you fix us? Can you fix even this heart, Jesus? We just pray, God, that we would be people, that you would find faithful over the long haul. You'd give us a heart of repenting again and again and again. That You'd root out anything in us that would be any stumbling block, any cause for anyone else, God. I just pray in, ho- in fear of you, God, in real reverence, Father. Would we look to you, God, so go room by room in our hearts. Empty it out, Father, whatever it is unpleasing to you, God. We want to violently root that thing out, Jesus. We love you, God. We ask for you to do some work. Amen. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Sanctuary Church Podcast. If we can be of any help to you, please don't hesitate to contact us at hello 
at SanctuarySF.com. We would love to connect. And wherever this finds you, may you experience the grace and peace of God our Father 